0: If you have your Bibles, uh, I want you to do a couple of things. One, uh, I want you to have a a finger in the book of Ruth, and Ruth is the front third of your Bible, uh, front quarter of your Bible, um, uh, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Ruth. And uh, so you can find it, it's the beginning of the Bible. And then I I want us to turn, first of all, to the very back of the Bible, to the book of Revelation. And... uh, I want us to, uh, I'm going to start there this morning as we conclude our look at the book of Ruth and try and put it in a perspective that I think um, matters and is helpful for us as God's people. Um, Father, we come before you now and uh, thank you for your presence here as we've worshiped together. It's been a joy to just be calmed by you, to be encouraged by your word, to be lifted up by the singing of God's people. To know that I'm not alone in this journey, that I have hundreds of people who are walking with me. Thank you for that encouragement. Thank you for the hope that is ours in Christ. Father, as we come to our time now in your word, we need to be reminded that you are on the throne. That there is a throne in this universe and it is occupied and you are working out your purposes in a perfect way. Lord, that doesn't mean that evil is not real, and it doesn't mean that circumstances aren't bleak, but it does mean that evil doesn't have the last word, and it does mean that our circumstances are not able to be turned around by your perfect purposes. Father, sometimes as we walk with you, though, there are those um, times where we gain the wrong perspective in life, and we lose sight of you, and we lose sight of your way in our life. I want to ask again this morning that you would remind us on how we can keep perspective. How we can not lose sight of you even though our circumstances may be dark. Help us, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Our frame of reference in life makes all the difference in the world. We began the book of Ruth by having a bird's eye perspective on the book. And I want to even draw back farther now and and gain what I would call a heavenly perspective perspective on the book of Ruth. A long time ago, I read a, a book by Daryl Johnson where he outlines this perspective so well, and I want to sort of summarize some of his, his thoughts about it. But each of us, as we've gathered here this morning, we are wearing a set of glasses through which we see the world. That set of glasses has been shaped and formed by our parents, by our extended family and teachers. It's been shaped by our childhood experiences, by books that we have read, by sorrows that we have endured, and by joys that we have had the privilege of um, having. The set of glasses we wear, or our frame of reference, determines, though, the dimensions of our world and the quality of our life. And so we need to regularly ask ourselves, is my perception of reality true? Does my frame of reference square with the way things actually are? Is my worldview in sync with the way things actually exist? Do my glasses focus reality, or do they actually distort reality? Today, as we conclude the book of Ruth, I want you to pick up a set of glasses that are shaped by Revelation chapter 4. Why? Because I think it's the fundamental conviction of this last book of the Bible that things are not as they seem. There is more to reality than meets the eye through unaided senses. There is more to the flow of history. There is more to this moment even than meets the eye of our unaided emotions. And it is the purpose of Revelation, and I believe in part the purpose of the book of Ruth, to open up more for us. They remind us that things are not as they seem, or precisely, things are not only as they seem. There is so much more going on around us than we are aware of. And one of the main purposes of this new set of glasses is that we will now begin to see our circumstances differently. That is the whole point, that we hear and feel our circumstances in a different context so that we react to them differently. In Revelation chapter 4, we are given a vision of heaven. And what a vision of heaven it is. It's a vision of heaven that clears our vision of earth. And you say, well, how can a vision of heaven clear our vision of earth? How can it sharpen and clear our vision of things down here? Many have heard, uh, you have heard the saying uh, that somebody is so heavenly minded that they are of no earthly good. This is the precise opposite of what is taught through the book of Revelation. And I want us to see how putting on these Revelation 4 glasses will help us understand the book of Ruth and the circumstances of our life more clearly. Revelation chapter 4, verse 1 begins this way. After these things I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven, and the first voice which I heard, like the sound of a trumpet speaking with me, said... Come up here, and I will show you what, what must take place after these things. And immediately I was in the Spirit. What did John see? Well, he saw a door standing open into heaven. It's a familiar door. Um, Stephen saw that same door the, when he was in the last moments of his life and he was being stoned by those around him. As he looked towards heaven, he saw heaven open. It's the same kind of opening that um, Saul had on the road to Damascus as he was heading off to round up a bunch of Christians and bring them back for greater persecution. God stopped him in his tracks. Opened his eyes to have a greater vision of heaven. It's the same um, sort of perspective that Jacob had, as he had that dream and he saw a ladder going up into heaven. And so there's this door that he saw standing open into heaven. Revelation. Already in chapter 3, verse 8, talks about a door of opportunity that was before a particular church. In 3.20, it talks about a door of our heart. Well, here we have a door of revelation. We have a door opening up so that we can see spiritual things that are, to the unaided senses and eyes, are unable to be seen. And what did he hear? He simply heard a trumpet a trumpet that was uh, the voice of the Lord speaking to him things that were taking place in the heavenly realm and where did he go it says there was a there was a door into heaven it's not the heaven where birds fly It's not the heavens where the stars shine. It's not the heaven which we understand as the place of perfection which exists alongside our imperfect world, that, that sort of perfect order of things that will exist when this world is done away. No, it's the sphere of spiritual reality where the masks, so to speak, are taken off and both good and evil are seen for what they really are. One writer says that John is summoned by the voice into the command room of earth, so to speak. He goes on and he puts it this way John is summoned to the control room at Supreme Headquarters. It's a room lined with maps in which somebody has placed clusters of little flags. It's a wartime, and, and the flags represent units of a military command. The movement of flags may mean one of two things. Either that changes have taken place in the battlefield with which the map must now be made to agree, or that an order is being issued for truth movements and the flags are being moved to new positions the units are expected to occupy. The strange and complex symbols of John's vision are, like the flags in this parable, the pictorial counterpart of earthly realities, and these symbols too may be either determinative or descriptive. In other words, as John sees into the heavenly realm, he gets a perspective of earth that we do not see unless the door of our heart is opened to see it. And we find this frequent movement between heaven and earth over the next number of chapters in the book of Revelation. And he sees what must take place. And there's nothing more to that than simply the events that are going to happen from now on. And how did he go there? He says he went there in the spirit. His feet were still on the island of Patmos. He didn't have an out-of-body experience. He was still praying and worshiping God on the island. But as he was doing that, it says God sort of opened the eyes of his mind to see the spiritual reality that was all around him, even as he was on that island. See, the point is that John is now able to apprehend spiritual realities. The eyes of his soul have been opened, and he is being given a glimpse of the invisible reality all around him. The point of Revelation is not that John was somehow transported. You know, in Star Trek, where they put them in that little beam sort of thing, and their molecules dissolve, and then they get transported somewhere else. That's not what was happening to John. There was this opening of his spiritual senses. And so this is not a physical relocation. Rather, it's a spiritual reorientation. Because for John, and for you and I, heaven is another dimension of reality. And that reality is all around us, even as we sit here. It's a reality that is close at hand. It's a reality that intersects our lives at numerous points. That right now, there is a spiritual reality in which we are interacting with. It's what Paul talked about, and we looked at this a number of months ago from uh, the book of Ephesians. That there are, we fight against not flesh and blood, but against spiritual principalities and against evil forces in heavenly places. Where are those heavenly places? It's the spiritual reality that encompasses us, even as we sit here this morning. And so the key to this chapter is that there is a throne And that there is an activity uh, happening on the throne and all around it. And the main idea from Revelation chapter 4 is that God is on the throne. And that there is somebody ruling in the heavens. And the activity in and around that throne indicates something of the person who occupies that throne. And so no matter how fearful or uncontrollable the forces of evil of earth might be, no matter how dark your life appears at this particular moment, they are immediately eclipsed by the vision that John gives us here the reality of a God that is greater than anything that we see, anything that we experience, that this God is on the throne of the universe. Another commentator brings it out this way. He says, we see God's footstool. That's the physical reality. That's the earth in which we exist. But when we come to Revelation 4, he says, let us not forget his throne. Because the throne of God rules over His footstool, which is this earth. And so we see this throne. And the throne is at the center in verse 2, it says. And it's not the physical center of the universe, but rather it's the spiritual center of the universe. It's important to have a biblical worldview, because a biblical worldview of the universe is not geocentric. It's not the earth as the center of this universe. Neither is it heliocentric. The sun is not the center of this universe. Neither is it the stars or the universe all around us. But rather the biblical view of the universe is theocentric. It's that God is at the very center of this universe in which we inhabit. And so there's this throne. And he goes on in verse 2 and he says that there is on the throne. There is somebody that is sitting on the throne. And John describes who is sitting on the throne. He doesn't describe the father, but he describes his radiance. It's like Moses when he says, I want to see you, God, and God hit him in the cleft of the uh, the rock, and he let him see his backward parts. He let him see his character, not his face. And so in the same way, um, John describes God, the one on the throne, as one like jasper or diamond, one like cornelian, which is a blood red stone. This is what God is like in appearance. And I wonder if we're here to To think about the brilliance of God. About the the, the brightness of God. About the light of God. That God is clothed in light. That light is his garment. As um, we read in Timothy. That God dwells in unapproachable light. Who no man has ever seen or can see. And that's the theme. I think of the book of Ruth. That the night is as bright as the day. Because God is present in the circumstances of Ruth. And in the circumstances of our life. And he sees around the throne something like a rainbow, like an emerald in appearance. And what do we think of when we think of a rainbow? I think we go back to the story of Noah. And after the flood, God placed a rainbow in the sky to remind him of his promise, to remind him of his mercy. And so around this throne, we have this incredible reminder that the God of the universe is a merciful God. That the God of the universe is a God who keeps his word. And around the throne are are 24 other thrones. And 24 elders are sitting on the throne, clothed in white garments and wearing golden crowns. And John goes on in verse 5. And he says, From the throne went flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder. Those, I think, are found throughout scriptures as common manifestations of the presence and the power of God. They are symbols of his authority and of his glory. And so all around this throne are just these, these constant zaps of his power and reminders of his might and of his glory. And before the throne, we read in verses 5 and 6 that there are seven lamps of burning fire which are the seven spirits of God. And I think that denotes to us the fullness of God, the completeness of God. And the meaning might be suggested in Zechariah chapter 4, where the prophet describes a candlestick with seven lamps, which are the eyes of the Lord, which reigns over the whole earth. And the meaning of the vision is given, not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. And before this throne is also this sea of glass like a crystal. And sometimes you have seen lakes or sometimes the ocean and we say it's like glass. And when it's like glass, there's a, a clarity and you can see down in the bottom. And I wonder if that sea of glass somehow is a, is a way to symbolize that before God, everything is laid bare. Before God, everything is seen. That nothing is hidden from God. And at the center of the throne, we have four living creatures cherubim and seraphim and they are the highest order of heavenly creatures that god has made and they're involved in the worship of god and in the government of god and they praise god for the totality of his creation and they are used to execute his divine will in this earth and the description of them is they are full of eyes in front and back simply means that there is this ceaseless vigilance, this unlimited intelligence that nothing escapes their notice. And each of them has six wings. And I think that depicts swiftness of movement and the ability to swiftly carry out the will of God. Whatever God commands, whatever God utters, bam, they're gone and they're doing it. Or they, with, with day and night, with unceasing praise and worship, they adore God. What a beautiful picture, and even a reminder to us of how alert we should be in the presence of God, how swift we should be to do the bidding of God, how full of praise and unceasing adoration we as God's people should be. And what do they say? It's beautiful what they say. The first thing they say is they say, holy, holy, holy. It's it's a way of saying, God, you are righteous. You do all things well. And the threefold repetition of that emphasizes the infinite holiness of God. And the holiness of God is something that should remind us that God doesn't make mistakes. The the God who is on the throne is depicted as one who is holy in every way. As reflecting on Psalm chapter 22, which is a psalm that is um, one that many think was going through the the mind of Jesus as he was on the cross. And the first couple verses, he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry day, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I find no rest. Has that ever described you? Has it ever described the circumstances of your life where you felt God was distant? You felt God had forsaken you? You felt that your prayers weren't getting through? What's the response to that? Listen to what Jesus says and what the psalmist says. Yet you are holy. And you are enthroned upon the praises of your people. What is that? That's a way of saying, I might not know. I might not understand. But you, God, are on the throne. You, God, are in control. You, God, are holy. And nothing escapes your notice. Not even my life and its circumstances. And so we're reminded that around this home or this throne, they extol the holiness of God. And then there's the power of God. They, they cry out, Almighty God, you have all power. You have all might. You are able to judge the earth. There is nothing that can stay the hand of God. For he is the almighty one. And then they talk about the eternity of God. Who was and is and is to come. That our God who is on the throne is without beginning and without end. And all the circumstances of our life fit into the eternity of God some way. It's amazing that this is the God who is on the throne of the universe. This is the God who we should be thinking about. This is the God that should occupy our hearts and minds as we walk through life on this earth. And they they continually, the elders gather down and they worship the God and they realize that everything in the world stands in relation to our God, to this God who's on the throne of this universe as creature to creator. There is nothing, loved ones, that exists that God did not create. There is nothing that stands outside the control and the power and the knowledge of God. Who has the power? The creature or the creator? Is not this a great comfort, loved ones? that not only is God on the throne and that throne is at the center of all things but that God is also the creator of all things and as a result he has authority and power over all things that God has not abandoned this world that this is our father's world that he has made all things in this world he has made them for his purpose and John's readers and us must not think that evil is winning must not think that the circumstances of our life are beyond the power or the knowledge of God. Yes, evil is real, but God is way more powerful than any evil we might experience, than any darkness we might walk through. And the divine purpose of God will work itself out through the darkness of our lives. Loved ones, those are the revelation Four glasses that we need to put on. And I think sometimes in life, you know how some of you wear glasses and I wear glasses and you have this constant trouble. You take them off and you forget where you put them. Or you have reading glasses. You have one pair in the TV room. You have one pair in your bedroom. You have one pair in the bathroom. You have one pair in the car. And you don't always have them on. And fuzzy, your life is fuzzy. And then once you find your glasses, there's clarity. I think that's sometimes true about having Revelation 4 glasses on. Sometimes we take them off or we forget to put them on. And so our life is overcome by the circumstances that we face. We need to pick up those glasses and we need to stick them on our head. And we need to look at the circumstances of our life through Revelation 4 glasses. And so how then can a spiritual reorientation like this open up the story of Ruth? Well, the church on earth, loved ones, corporately and individually is battered. It's tested. We're tempted, we're tried, we're persecuted, we're distract, just distracted. And sometimes it takes everything in us to just live another minute, to survive another hour. And we wonder, is it possible for me to endure this hardship again? I think Ruth tells us, yes. Yes. Ruth is a snapshot, a picture of God's reign. Ruth is a snapshot of this God who is on the throne ruling and guiding all things to his perfect purpose. And with physical eyes, it might be easy for us to come to the book of Ruth and say, well, it's just a great love story and, you know, it ends with this this genealogy and I don't really read genealogies anyhow, uh, anyhow. I just sort of skip over those things. And, you know, names, how boring is that? Unless you're one of those people who love going to Ancestry.ca and um, finding everything about your family history, then you love names. But we come to the genealogy that ends the book of Ruth, and you think, what a strange way to end a book. Now, these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Aminibat. Man, would you like to name your kid that? Hey, Aminibat, come here. Another one Aminadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Salmon. I'm glad nobody calls their kids Salmon today. Or Halibut. Um. Anyhow, Nashon fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse. And Jesse fathered David. So what? Well, loved ones, do you know that those names reappear in the exact same order? Over a thousand years later, that these names that conclude the book of Ruth and conclude this little family history are placed near the beginning of a family tree that will extend over 41 generations. And what is that family tree? It's found in Matthew chapter 1, verses 2 to 18. And the sum of that family tree is so that all the generations from Abraham to David, that's where this genealogy fits in. That's where Ruth fits in between Abraham and David. And they were 14 generations. And from David to the deportation of Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation of Babylon to Christ, to Christ, 14 generations. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place this way. Do you get it? See, when we look at the book of Ruth with spiritual eyes, with the spiritual reorientation, we realize that even in the circumstances, in the bleak circumstances of Naomi and of Ruth and of Boaz, that God was working out his purposes that over a thousand years later, these people and this little baby would be in the bloodline of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Holy, holy, holy. Holy Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. You see, we need this kind of spiritual reorientation for our life. We need to put on Revelation chapter 4 glasses. We need to wear these glasses when we look at our lives, when we look at our church, when we look at the world. God is on the throne. He is at work in the circumstances of your life and of my life. He is at work through the circumstances of this church. He is at work in the circumstances of this community. He is at work in the circumstances of this world, which may appear to be falling apart. God is working out his purposes for I know the plans I have for you declares the Lord plans for your welfare and not for evil plans to give you a future and a hope how can God say that because he is on the throne of the universe and we know that for those who love God all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose How can God say that? How can he have the audacity to say that all the dark circumstances of my life will eventually work out for my good? Because he is the creator of heaven and earth. Because he is the God who is on the throne of this universe. Because he is a God that is directing the circumstances of your life and of my life to accomplish not only good for me, but ultimately his good purposes. And he writes that in the book of Ephesians. We're there three times as Paul unfolds the beauty of God and what he has done for us. He says "And all of this is according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Beloved, do you see that in the book of Ruth? Can you see how God now has worked in the presence of, in the present of these people for their future and extending into the eternal counsels of God now for our good? Because in Christ, we find salvation. To God be the glory, great things he has done. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord. Let the earth hear his voice. And so, I just want to take us back and wrap up the few things that we started with at the very beginning of this book of Ruth. Not now from a bird's eye perspective, but with this heavenly perspective in mind. First, Reacquaint yourself with the providence of God. And be confident that God is guiding and directing and sustaining and upholding and governing this world so that his purposes will be accomplished. You see, this book of Ruth is about the ways of God in human life. More succinctly, it is about the hand of God. It's a beautiful story that illustrates this grand reality that God is a hands-on God. And there is no other deity that I know. There's no other deity that people worship that has a God that is intersecting their lives moment by moment. Second by second. Guiding their past. Guiding their present. Guiding their future into some beautiful plan. That is our God. A hands-on God, he is involved in the details of your life and of our world. So humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time, he might exalt you. Cast all your anxieties upon him because he cares for you. Oh, may God, grant us the ability to submit to the hand of God so that at the right time, he might exalt us and take our cares upon him. Also reflect upon your interaction with the family of God. We've had lots to say about this. just want to tie it all together. The book of Ruth is this beautiful book that illustrates this Christian characteristic of kindness. A kindness that comes to us from our Heavenly Father and from nowhere else. It's a, it's a kindness that is described with words like loyalty and faithfulness and goodness and mercy and love and Compassion, as we have seen through the story of Ruth, it's a kindness that requires extraordinary uh, uh, commitment. It's the kindness that takes extraordinary risks. It's a kindness that requires that we do things in a right way. It's a kindness that requires that we put the needs of others ahead of our own needs. That we think of others as more important as ourselves. That we think of the good of others as more important than the hurt that might come into our life. This is the hesed that we find woven through the book of Ruth and how God uses that kindness to accomplish his purposes. He has told us what is good and what the Lord requires of us to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with our God. And then it's a book that reminds us to rejoice in the wideness of God's grace. He said this at the very beginning, and I want to remind it again, that Ruth reminds us that the mercy of God knows no boundaries. Aren't you thankful for that? Aren't you thankful that God draws us from all ethnic backgrounds, from all social um, uh, economic backgrounds, from, from, from uh, backgrounds of male and female? He draws us out of those into a relationship with Him. And we see that, Ruth. Ruth was a Moabite. She was outside of the covenant people of God. She was hated by the people of God. And yet God, in his mercy and his grace, he reached out his hand and he said, this one is mine. And he pulled her into his family and he pulled her into the line of his beloved son, Jesus Christ. Loved ones, I pray that we would be a people that are able to continually put aside our prejudices to put aside our, our, our misconceptions and our perceptions of other people, that we would not look at people around us and wonder, are they worthy of Christ or, you know, will they fit or any of that, to throw that stuff out of our mind and take the good news of the gospel to anyone who will listen to us, regardless of who they are, regardless of their background, regardless of where they come from, because they need Jesus just like you and I needed Jesus. And when we understand the wideness and the expanse of the grace and the mercy of God, we recognize that, as Isaiah said, there is truthfulness in this word, turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. Loved ones, our God is on the throne of the universe. He is able to break even the hardest heart. He is able to save even the chief of sinners. His, His grace is deep enough. His mercy is wide enough. His love is broad enough to embrace any of us and all of us. Any who would turn to him, they can find forgiveness through Christ. And then, lastly again, just to remind ourselves of God's redemptive purposes. This heaven's eye view lets us see more clearly that God's plan was so much bigger in scope than anything Naomi and Ruth and Boaz could ever imagine. And isn't that just like the God that we serve? See, in Ruth we see part of redemption history. In Ruth, we see how the promise of Genesis 3.15, where, where God says um, he will bruise the heel of the serpent. That's the first promise that God will act. How that promise now is working itself out through the history of this world. And Ruth is just one small glimpse of how God is working out his redemption plan in this world. May God open our eyes to see the part that we might play in the salvation of a grandchild who might go on to be a great missionary yet in a part of the world that hasn't received the gospel our, our, our life, we might not see the big picture of it yet because I'll be dead in 50 years. But I hope and I pray that maybe God will use the integrity of my life, will use something in my life to bless the next generation and maybe the next generation and maybe somebody that I talk to, will God will be privileged to raise up in an extraordinary way to have an impact that just blows my mind away as I look down from heaven. Loved ones, look at your lives with a greater view. Realize that God is working out something that is more than you can ever imagine through the circumstances of your life. The book of Ruth then focuses like a microscope on the detailed preparations God has made in order to fulfill his purposes in redemption history. I've so enjoyed the opportunity to realize that God works in mysterious ways. That God is at work even in the darkness of my life. And beloved, things have not changed. The God of Ruth's day is the God of our day. The God to whom darkness is like lightness is the same God who is interacting in our lives. And so as John reminds us, look, a throne. And the throne is occupied. And we should not be saying, look what the world is coming to. But rather we should be saying, look who has come into this world. Look, who is sitting on the throne of this universe. Because as we put on those Revelation 4 glasses, we recognize that there is a throne. We recognize that that throne is occupied. We recognize that that throne is occupied by none less than God, the creator of heaven and earth. So, loved ones, he is a faithful God. He does all things well. Praise to the Lord who o'er all things so wondrously reigneth, shieldeth thee gently from harm, and when fainting sustaineth. Hast thou not seen how thy heart's wishes have been granted in what he ordaineth? Loved ones, put on your revelation four glasses and take on the world.